individualistic life, living individually in an independent manner. We're born out of that, and we are rescued into a community, right? A community. And that's hard for a lot of us because we like to keep the walls and the berms kind of high, right? Especially when it comes to pain. But this is the thing. Because of the vertical relationship I have with God, I have a horizontal relationship with you. Whenever I became a Christian, you became a Christian. We became brothers and sisters, right? We're connected. Our growth is a communal project. I'll be honest with you. Our pain is a communal project as well. When you hurt... The pain is shared communally. When I hurt, the pain is shared communally. Now, now, and I get when I say that, the immediately what we think is, is there's no way you feel my pain like I feel my pain. And that's true and vice versa. You can never experience my pain the way I feel my pain. But we borrow it, don't we? I mean, don't you sit and listen to some people tell you of their pain and there's a piece of you that goes, oh gosh. And the more they tell you, the more you hold, the more of the burden you hold. That's the thing about community. The more we really do life on life together, you realize we live in a world of pain. That's what I've realized. In this series, we've been following some key figures, and today we're picking up from where we left off last week. Today we have Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Right? Luke is still writing um, in the first person. He had at some point joined in, and I think he exits in this passage as well. The heroes of this story, though, and the main focus of this story is going to be Paul and Silas. That's what this passage is going to be fixated on, is what they do in this. So we know that Luke and Timothy are still in the city somewhere but they didn't get locked up in this part of the story, right? And they're still in Philippi, which is where we found them last week, starting the first European church. Some of you were here, you'll remember, this is where Lydia became a Christian, where God opened her heart to see and to understand, and a church was born out of her household as she's very hospitable. It's a very cool story. This is where we're picking it up in Acts 16. We're going to look in the 16th verse, and this is the word of the Lord for us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay, pause. Right there. Here's a question I had for the longest time growing up in the Lord. Why annoyed? Why would Paul be annoyed? It doesn't seem like an appropriate response. First of all, everything this woman says is true. Her declaration as she follows behind them is nothing short of the truth. And plus, it's free publicity, right? Publicity is always good, especially when you're trying to build something from the ground up. Here he has a supernatural event where this woman, this young woman who's a slave, albeit, but she has some sort of notoriety in the community. We know this because her owners made much by her. So she was known to have some supernatural clout, some cosmic clout to some degree. And she's following after, declaring something that is very true. And he is annoyed. He wants to stop this. It all revolves around the phrase, most high God. This is why. This is why he does this. Most high God is not a phrase that is explicit to Christianity. 
It had existed with the Greeks and the Romans beforehand. This is actually how they would refer to like Zeus or Apollo or any other various god. They would say Zeus, the most high god, Apollo, the most high god. So as she declares something like this, that these guys are about the most high god, it would have been very easy for the Greeks and the Romans that are looking on, the onlookers, the city at large, to be confused. Because after all, they're preaching about Jesus They're preaching about God's gospel to us, but we know her and we know what she's involved with. So wait, what? There's a little bit of a a situation where the main thing is not the main thing anymore. There's turbulence and white noise and static and no one really knows what Paul is saying. And now they don't even know if they can believe it because of her and she being the one that is the herald. And so he says he's going to put a stop to it. And he does. So I'm going to give you something that I see Jesus' people doing, and we're going to throw a few of these up on the screen, okay? Because it's easy, just at a cursory reading, to see Jesus' people doing certain things, and this is one of them. Jesus' people are always going to keep the main thing the main thing. You're going to keep the main thing the main thing. Common tactic today. It's very common for the main thing not to be the main thing. All the enemy of the church has to do is mingle in something to create turbulence and static. It could even be something good, something that would fascinate the church so that a city looking on looks and says, wait, what? We thought you guys were about Jesus, but we're hearing a whole lot about prosperity theology. And it's muddying the waters. We're the end of the world. Now it's all about the blood moon and how many blood moons we've had and weird stuff like that. And so now the main thing's not the main thing anymore. Are we supposed to be Republicans now? Carry guns? Homeschool our kids? Lots of things, I'm afraid. Spiritual gifts? Even good things. I'm all for spiritual gifts. I'm actually all for the end of the world, believe it or not, because I love Jesus. He's coming back. It's done. It's exciting for us. But can we all agree that even good things are not the main thing? I think the main thing is the miraculous birth, the perfectly lived life, the passionate death, the miraculous rebirth of Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the death. I think the gospel of good news to us from God himself as a grace to us, that is the main thing. And even good things can mingle in there and start to distract. And I think it's easy for us, even as Christians, to take something, a minor, and major on it so the world looks at us and says, wait, what? I don't understand. And then what we do starts looking a lot like this demon-possessed girl, just to be frank. We're committing something, doing something, living, posting on Facebook something to where the world looks on and says, I am not sure I understand anymore. Is that what it takes to be a Christian? Do I have to do that to be a Christian? And no longer is the main thing the main thing. So be careful there. Be careful, okay? Probably need to move on. Um, Verse 19 Verse 19, let's keep going. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, typically two judges, right? They said, these men are Jews, and they were disturbing our city. Okay, next week we're going to see that they are accused of turning the world upside down, right? So they're affecting people. Verse 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in, as it typically does, the crowd joined in and attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them, so it's getting real, real fast here, and gave orders to beat them with rods. 
And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely, which is hilarious. They're being kept safely so that nothing bad happens to them after they get beaten by rods. Verse 24, having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, more of a dudgeon, and fastened their feet into stocks. Okay. The second thing we see about Jesus' people. Jesus' people will embrace truth and anger the world. You will love truth and you will tick the world off. You will love truth and you will tick the world off. Here it is. The truth of God has found this city and this city's response is to beat it with rods. And you know how we know this? Because it's in all of our hearts, isn't it? This is mankind's deal, even mine. Listen, my heart's impulse is whenever a truth visits me that might cost me. It might tell me to do something I I really don't want to do, to be totally honest. It might threaten to take something from me or make me do something that might be too painful. I'd love to lie to you and say my immediate impulse is just to say, yes, Lord, and take it and apply it to my life. But sometimes it's to discredit that truth, make fun of it, mock it, and yes, even beat it with rods. Even beat it with rods. Listen, I don't think it's just me. I think it's you too. I think we all do this. In fact, I know we do it because we didn't just beat truth with rods. We put him on a cross. We hung him up. We strung him up. We murdered him with our sins. By our hands, we did this. So I want to be careful in this season before we put black hats on all the authorities and the magistrates and the police in this passage, which is what we're quick to do. I am too. I'm quick to read it and go, come on, morons. First of all, they didn't even do anything all that bad. Second of all, do you understand what you're doing? But the thing is, is I have to put a black hat on my own head too. I do the same thing. Listen, be be very careful. Some of you, even today, in a room a fraction of this size, it would be true. Some of you, this very day, have truth coming to you. Maybe not truth from this. Maybe not truth from anything you've heard this week or this month. But in this season of life, you have some truth that has visited you. And instead of applying it like you know you should, you're discrediting it, mocking it, and even beating it with rods. Because this is what the human heart does. We're not above it. So we have to understand that's what's going on right here. And we have a new character that is introduced at this point. Not just Paul and Silas. We have a jailer. Most likely an older soldier, most likely retired. You found a lot of times the retired soldiers would start to fill the posts of sheriff, magistrate, things like that. Philippi was largely a military city. We have them all over our country as well. This was a place where um, there were a lot of stationed soldiers for Rome because it was a pretty pivotal city geographically. But whenever they retired, they would stay there. Philippi was loaded with soldiers and ex-soldiers because of some things that the city had done in the past. They had great tax benefits. So there's a highly likely chance that this jailer was some sort of an ex-soldier. Definitely middle class though, which is interesting because now we see Lydia, upper class, The slave girl, lower class. Now we see a blue-collar guy, most likely. We see the gospel starting to hit all aspects of society. And this guy puts them in stocks. These stocks were designed for torture, but we don't know, and it's, it's not likely that they were being tortured. The stocks would hold your feet and your legs in a certain place so that the top of your body, torso, could be stretched out. We would be reading into this to, to say that they are being tortured right here. I would say they're not comfortable. This was just to hold them still, right, the way we read it. 
It'd be like a few weeks ago we talked about Peter being chained to two different soldiers. That's most likely what's going on here. The fascinating thing, however, is this. Verse 25, one of the most incredible passages, I think, in the Bible. One sentence. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That is so cool. Another thing we see about Jesus' people And the main point today, Jesus' people sing and worship from pain while the world watches on. We sing, we worship, we pray in the midst of our own stalks. Get a picture for this, right? Their backs are shredded. Chunks of skin being held together by clotted blood as the church is scattering and they have a mob outside waiting for what could be their execution the very next day. That's where they're at right now, in stocks. I I think this is amazing because they are singing of God's beauty. They're, they're, They're declaring how noble and how generous Jesus is in this moment. Try to put yourself in the dungeon. Maybe you're one of the other prisoners listening to what's going on. I can imagine it in my mind a little bit, just a little bit. Silas looking over and saying, hey, Paul, How's your back? Because mine is killing me. I think I'm still bleeding. Yeah, my back hurts too. My legs are killing me even more though because of these stocks. And what do you think about the church? I mean, they're not in here. I don't see them anywhere, but are they scattered? Are they holding strong? Are they praying? And what about us? Are we going to be killed tomorrow? I mean, it's midnight. I can imagine one of them saying, I don't know, but I do know one thing. Jesus did say that we would be persecuted and reviled. He said that people would turn against us and take our words and twist them and would hurt us. I think we're falling right in line with what Jesus said would happen. And then they would maybe start talking about what Jesus did and remind each other of the gospel. Maybe talk about it. Maybe start praying. Some of you have been in places like this. A prayer becomes... An impulse to cry out becomes a song, becomes something beautiful, an act of worship. I think that's how they got there. I don't think it was easy. If it's not easy for you, why would we think it would be easy for them? All the while, everyone around them watching, wondering, how is it that they can do this? They're talking about a God that's letting them rot there, right? Where was this God whenever they're getting their beating? And yet, they're singing. They're praising. They're praying. I see the gospel in this. Let me explain. I mean, it, it, to me, when I read this, it has a feeling, a nuance to it that reminds me of the cross. Another time where someone cried out and worshiped while onlookers looked on, even other criminals. Said Jesus doing this from the cross, he did it at his cost for our benefit. A little bit different, but very similar. The world watching on with disbelief. You know, one of the most fascinating things I find about the cross is a statement that Jesus uttered My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Now, if you're not accustomed to the Hebrew Bible, it might have sounded like he was just crying out out of desperation, like, You've left me, God. You've left me. It might look like it's discrediting what he is building by that statement. 
But if you knew anything about the Psalms, and if you had what we have before us now, which is a, a Bible, you would see that he's actually beginning a song. He's starting a psalm, the 22nd one. In fact, look at, look at that psalm right now. This was written hundreds of years before the cross. Little did the author know that this would be uttered. This might be the last passage on Jesus' mind before he died. Little did he know that this would be used prophetically as it is being used right now. Verse 1 in the 22nd Psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Pause. Have any of you ever been in a place like that? I'm crying out. You're nowhere. It's night. I'm crying out. Can't sleep. You're nowhere. Why have you left me? Verse 11. Skip ahead to verse 11. Imagine the cross. Imagine Jesus. Be not far from me, for my trouble is near, and there is none to help me. Isn't that what it feels like sometimes? Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My company of evildoers encircles me, and they have pierced my hands, and they have pierced my feet, and I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots, but you, O Lord, do not be far. This song is describing this passionate event that's occurring on a cross hundreds of years before it even happened. It's amazing to me. Here's the good news for us, for those of us who are in pain, whatever pain it is. The good news for us is we have a generous captain who has gone before us and has experienced pain. Pain that we couldn't even conceive of internally and externally. Physically, soul, relationally, he's experienced pain. And why did he do that? Why would anyone do that? Jesus did that so that he could defeat pain cosmically. Cosmically. In a grandiose way, he could take pain and lay it in the grave for you and for me. And we don't deserve this. We actually deserve the opposite. We deserve eternal pain. And he heaps it on his shoulders to remove it from us, diverting any kind of judgment away from those who he calls family. I see the gospel here. See, pain has an agenda. Pain's agenda is to follow you all of your days, both here and otherwhere. It's to follow you everywhere. For every time you wake up, for you to just feel that pang, just that reminder that, oh yeah, that bad thing is still there. It didn't go away. That is pain's agenda for you. And Jesus wrecked that agenda. He derailed it. There will be a day where pain stops. And as I was telling someone earlier, we won't be able to wipe the smile from our face. That's coming. And he experienced pain for our benefit to do this. This this is how Jesus could worship from the cross. He knew this was coming. This is how he could worship. This is how Paul and Silas could worship. And this is how you and I can worship when we are in pain. Because we know the story. We know where pain came from and we know where it's going. It says this in verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. 
They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That what? That he has done it. This is what Jesus had in mind as he starts off the song by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew where it was going. He's biblically literate. He knew that it ended the very last sentence with God has done it. He has done it. He's defeating pain and putting it down right now. And what everybody's feeling, the fracture that everybody has deep down inside and whatever department of life it is, it will be put down. There's an end to it and it's provided for us, given to us as a gift. He has done it. And because of this, we are free to worship in the face of pain, free to cry out in the face of pain. I mean, do you hurt right now? Does the pain hurt? I've got some pains that hurt deep inside. Christian, listen, you have been redeemed from death and eternal pain. There will be a day where it will be struck down never to touch you again. This should lead you to worship. You don't have to just be, you don't have to just feed on peace here. Feed on the peace elsewhere. Does it hurt? Does that pain hurt? Then square your shoulders with it and let it remind you of what God has done for you and me. It's so hard. It's so easy to say right now, isn't it? It's so so easy to write down. It's very difficult to do in the midst of pain, to take your eyes off of it and to place them on the gospel. I understand that before I say this. And listen, even though the midnight hour of pain is a very difficult time to sing out, to pray, to read, ask God to give you the grace to do it, and he will. Because no, friends, you can't do this on your own. You can't, you can't manufacture this kind of worship and deliver it through grit teeth. That's not the way it works. It's a gift. Even that itself is a gift to us. This is what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says on this passage. He says, any fool can sing in the day. It is easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. I love this. I love this. Do you hear this? What this means is is that God has engineered moments and midnight hours for us to call upon him and to depend upon him to put songs in our mouth, to lead us to worship him because we can't do that. Have you ever wondered why is it that everyone else can pray right now and I can't pray? Why is it that everyone else is, is uh, excited and rejoicing and I can't do it? It's because you're trying too hard to just figure it out on your own. That's never going to happen. You've got to depend on God to deliver, hand deliver that type of grace and peace to you. My prayers usually sound like, God, fill my lungs because I don't feel like singing. Fill my heart because I don't feel like confessing. And as I remind myself of what God has done, God just delivers it. He delivers it. It's beautiful. I have spoken with a few guys the last few weeks who were finding really no ray of light, as Spurgeon says, to read their notes by. Family issues that I wouldn't wish upon any of you, right? Marital issues body issues, financial issues. Nothing's very funny. Nothing's very bright. No sunshine it doesn't feel like. And the only counsel I have for them 
to help them see the gospel. That's it. And that's what I have to bring to myself, too. It's just to look at the gospel. And it's not some cheap misdirect. Like, hey, are you in pain? Look over here. It doesn't hurt so bad over here. It's not a misdirect. It's the remedy. It's the only thing we as Christians have. It's what we see these men doing. They're singing songs. And you know the other prisoners were looking on in disbelief, saying, what are you doing? That's otherworldly. It's, it's in fact insane that you would do that. You shouldn't even be doing this. They're locked in stocks, but not really. They're in an inner prison, but not really. I mean, life is leaking out of them, but not really, because they know differently, and it's leading them to pray. Here is the quick application I have to this as I'm trying to land this. The, the quick application is more of a missional one, because I love this point in all of this. There is great missional work that can happen in the stocks. The world is looking on as Jesus' people experience and worship from pain, right? So we become missionaries whether we like it or not, right? Nothing gets the world's attention quite like success and pain. This is when the world stops to take notice, right? Stops to take notice when people do really well and they become very successful or when you are to be pitied. Then it stops and it diverts its gaze to you. And I think what the world is doing is it looks to see a lot of times, how are you going to handle it? How am I going to handle Am I going to look just like them? If I look just like them, then what's the, what's the purpose behind Christianity? Am I going to discredit the very God that I serve by the things that come out of my mouth? Or am I going to show that Jesus and Jesus' people handle even pain differently? We're even distinct in how we see and how we handle pain. Right now, people are watching you in pain. People always notice more than, than you think they do. How are you suffering out loud right now? In your pain, how do others see you in pain right now? How are they observing your hurt? What kind of things are you saying? Here's a couple typical things that are not very missional at all, right? One thing is for someone to say, hey, you know, I know, yeah, thanks for noticing. My pain's pretty bad, but hey, things could be worse. Okay, can we talk about that for a minute? Because yeah, technically it's true. Things can be worse. It's not very helpful to anyone. It's definitely not helping you, so quit pretending it is. To say things could be worse is true. It's not helping you. It's not preaching Jesus, right? In fact, there's a new Jesus in town. It's a little mini Jesus, and it's called luck. I'm lucky because it could be worse, because I could be a starving kid in Ethiopia. True, I guess you could be. And if I'm luckier, then I won't be in the damage that I'm in right now. It's a true statement. It preaches a false Jesus. Jesus becomes achieving chance, making luck work for you. Here's another one that bothers me, right? Time will pass. Time, okay, again, not very missional. Yes, time will pass. That's true. Time will pass. It's not helping you. It's not helping anyone watching you, okay? You can stack enough days, weeks, and months so that you don't feel a pain anymore. But honestly, folks, come on, honestly, that doesn't get rid of some pain, does it? Some pain follows you to the grave, does it not? And also, there's a new Jesus in town, and it's time. Maybe time will save me from this. Time will pass. I will achieve peace when enough time has passed. Listen, please, Christians, stop saying that. Stop saying that. They're watching you suffer. What are you going to tell them? Be a missionary. Show them Jesus. 
for your sake as you suffer and, and wrestle with this pain out loud. For their sake, do it differently. Are you honest with them? You know, you could be honest with those who are far from Jesus. It's not weird and hurtful. It's just honest. So if you're struggling with something and you're like, no, this really hurts right now. And I know God's involved, but not really. I mean, I know God's involved, but I'm struggling with the fact that God's involved. I've not landed there yet. I have one foot in the truth. I know God's involved. I know he regards me. He loves me. I know he's in control, but I'm kind of like this. I'm one foot in, one foot out, and I'm not totally there yet, to be totally honest with you. Does that hurt them? Is that going to send them to hell? No, it's being honest with them. They're looking and they're seeing that pain is real to Christians. It's real. We just deal with it differently. We're going to land in a different place than they're going to land. Be honest in your missional work. Be honest with each other in your communal work. Quit pretending that everything is fine. Quit doing that. Just say, listen, my life is just a dumpster fire right now. And I've got every weird thing sprouting up. And I'm in pain here. And my marriage is in the toilet. And I've got migraines every day. And I've got a teenager. Don't even get me started. You know, as you're wrestling through the pains and the hurts, just be honest. They're community. They're going to help you. Why? Because you don't, you're not going to do as good with the gospel. They'll preach it to you. They'll remind you. They'll look at you and grab you and say, listen, man, with a smile on their face, it's going to be okay. Because look what Jesus has done for you and me. I've been there, and I know what your doubts are. You need that, friends. Going it alone is what you were, scared, it's what you were saved out of. That's what you were rescued out of. God didn't rescue us from individuality to a sanctified individuality. That doesn't describe the church at all. We're rescued into each other for a reason. All right, soapbox, I'm getting off. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now he would have been executed. He would be saving himself the shame and the trouble before everyone. Verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. That I don't understand. If I was one of the other prisoners, I might have bolted at that chance, but they're all there still. Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Awesome statement, great question. Here's another statement. Jesus' people love their enemies as good missionaries do. Jesus' people love their enemies. This is a guy that might have been a part of their torturing with the rods and definitely shut them down into stocks, right? So if I'm Silas and the stocks pop open and the door swings wide, I'm grabbing Paul and I'm like, yo, yo, wait. He's about to off himself. Let's give him a minute. Because <laughs> when he hits the ground, we're going to walk over him, see, and we're going to go out the front door. Let's not create a thing if there's not a thing. Let's just wait, <laughs> And he doesn't do that. Paul says, no, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. There's good news for you, even though you beat me. There's good news for you, even though you persecuted me. There's good news for you. I love this. They love their enemies. Friends, if you cannot love those who revile you, who torture you, who hate you, 
struggle understanding what the gospel is. Because the gospel is for the imperfect haters. It's good news for haters. We persecuted, we threw rocks, we beat with rods, we declare war. He takes us in and calls us family. He calls us friends. Listen, some of you have experienced that, right? But how are you handling your enemies? Does it really reveal you have a good gospel comprehension? It might not. Some of you in here now still are enemies of God. You still are. And we're going to talk to that in just a second. But do you see where the gospel changes, even how we look at people? Verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the answer to sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. So the household didn't become a Christian just because he did. They were all of age enough to understand. He spoke the gospel to them as well. Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Okay, statement. Jesus' people celebrate and are hospitable. They're celebrating. Listen, this is a long night. Have you caught the time sequence in this? They haven't gone to bed yet. It was at midnight that they started talking and praying, right? So in this evening, there was a beating, a worship gathering, an earthquake, a jailbreak, a gospel discussion with a suicidal guy, a home church service with the family of the suicidal guy, the suicidal guy nursing their wounds back to health, a baptism service, and then they got down on some food because what else do you do when you're tired like that? So they had barbecue or breakfast barbecue, which is probably the best kind of breakfast. Breakfast barbecue. And the jailer shows them hospitality. Now, we saw this last week with Lydia, and I'm not going to go back and reteach what hospitality is. But we see the jailer receiving hospitality and very quick to give it out because he is tasted of it in his own life, free to give it. Again, a good thing to us, friends, if you are not hospitable, if you do not extend grace to outsiders, look at how you see the gospel. There's a crack somewhere, a deep fracture. Because not only were we haters, not only were we aggressive against the gospel, he calls us into family and we will sit at his table and dine one day, a table with a chair for us where only family is supposed to sit. We shouldn't be there. It's a party we shouldn't be at. But we're there because we're loved and we're family. And God is hospitable, extending grace to outsiders. This is what we see. And he's doing the exact same thing. And when you get this, you can be hospitable to outsiders. When people are acting like donkeys, you can still be hospitable. When they're acting horrible, you can still love them because the gospel has changed you. It's changed you. Another thing we see, statement. Jesus' people bring restitution and reparation. Here are two words the church hates. <laughs> restitution and reparation. I remember hearing this as a college student a billion years ago and going, wait, what? We do what now? Restitution and reparation is going back and restoring something that was destroyed. So in this case, the jailer is going back and he's nursing wounds that he was a part of administering. So he starts nursing them back to health. Another good teaching point for us is to go back and fix the damage that we have created, even before Christ. I think there's this weird teaching in the church that what happens B.C. stays B.C., right? 
We don't have to go back and fix any damage. That was in my old life. I know I stole from my boss and I shoplifted and I did this and I did that, but I don't have to, come on now. This is my new life, right? It all started over, right? Like a reset button? No. Pay reparation. Pay restitution. Again, in a room half this size. There's many of us who have always wondered if we should be doing that or not. Let me answer that question for you. Yes, you should. If you have questions on that, by the way, because this can get a little bit murky for some people, feel free to email, come up and talk to me, text, whatever you need to do, and we can work through it, all right, on an individual basis. But restitution is not abiblical. It is part of the Bible. To be where we can fix the damage and explain why that damage is there and explain why we're even fixing it is a gospel and a missional statement, even if you'll never get caught. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into a prison and they do not throw us out secretly. No, that's how he says it too. No. No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. That must have been comfortable (laughs) in that room at the time. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And that's when they leave Philippi. Just like Paul would not let the slave girl murky up and mar the picture of the gospel, he's not going to let these guys do it either. He's not going to let these yahoos make it look like the church had to slink out of town in the dead of night, because that's what would have happened. The people of the city would have said, hey, whatever happened to that church thing? I mean, they just kind of like vanished. Was it like not on the up and up? I mean, it was like here and then it's gone. What's going on? I mean, Paul was like this big deal and then he just kind of disappeared. Was he like a charlatan? That's what's going on right here. It's not Paul throwing it, saying, hey, well, listen, no, they can come back and apologize to me. I'm not moving because my feelings are hurt and they need to come and make good. So I'll be right here. You can find me right here and I'll do whatever I want after that. That's not what's going on. He's protecting and guarding the gospel and the sanctity of the message of what God is bringing to mankind. And this is just what it looks like right here. It's not jabbing them back. So go ahead and stand with me. And we're finishing right now. But there's a couple people that I want to talk to. There are some of you in here who have been beating the truth. The truth has come to you, and you've been fighting it off with everything you've got, blow after blow, discrediting it. Maybe it's to become a Christian. Maybe it's to pay reparation. Maybe it's to forgive somebody. I don't know what it would be. But truth has come to you. You recognize it as truth. You've received it as truth, but not totally received it. You're fighting it. And God's going to get, this is the good news for you. God knew you were going to do that. Because you're screwed up. Just like I'm screwed up. Which is why the gospel is good news. You can turn and repent from that today. There's grace for you, friend. Turn. Take that truth. Eat it. Make it true for you. Some of you in here, you struggle making the main thing the main thing. All these pet projects littering your life 
and your neighbors have no clue what you stand for. It's not quite just Christianity. It's a certain type of Christianity where all these little things are orbiting your world and they can't figure out what the main thing is with you. You've majored on so many minors that they don't even know what the major is anymore. Clean up the closet, friend. Go back to your first love. What are you putting so much weight in? Where are you confusing those around you? Some of you are hurting right now. An excruciating pain. And you're not able to take your eyes off of it. It just hurts too much. It's stolen your focus. It's taken the joy out of your life. You have a hard time reading the Bible. You have a much harder time singing. You don't really want to talk to anybody about it. You're just in pain. Listen, borrow from this passage today. Let this passage lead you today. As Jesus worships and sings from the cross, as these men worship and sing from the stocks, friend, you, there is worship waiting. There is generous song waiting. There's deep prayer waiting for you. It's there, but you've got to ask God to give you grace. Just be honest. God, I don't have it today. I can't worship you today. I'm all out of words. And to be honest, I'm a little ticked off. I don't have it. I'm in pain. You think he hasn't heard that prayer? He heard it that night. Let God come to you with grace. Let him fill you. Do it today. Do it today. Don't let them just be words on a screen. Let it be the song of your heart. And then we have the jailers in here who are still at a place where they are not sure. They've heard a little bit here. They heard a slave girl say something off over here. They've heard these men talking. You've heard things. You're far from God, and you're pretty aware of that. And you've heard little rumblings here and there. And you're pretty sure at this point you know what the main thing is. But there's a question lingering. What must I do to be saved? Right? And listen, make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. Again, let this passage lead you. Talk to somebody today. Let us help you. Let us help you look through and and, kind of get your footing Because I know it can be confusing. Something in you just knows you need to respond, but you you don't know. Is a certain way to pray? Am I supposed to pray a certain way? Am I supposed to talk to a pastor or a person? What do I do from this point? Let us help you. Let us help you. We have have people around here. Matt, will you raise your hand? Yeah, Matt, we've got David back here. These are people that you can talk to. You can come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. Okay, let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. You are a noble and generous captain who has gone before us experiencing what we experience and you've done this in order in order that we never have pain clobber us and destroy us. We might be pushed down. We might be crippled. We might have limps. We might have pains linger and follow us. But Father, it will never chase us into eternity. Not with you. You've dealt with that. You've taken core. I mean, the strife is totally over. There's no war around that anymore. It is done. You are so good. Lord, not that we would just be a people fluent in how good you are when the pain is not so obvious, but we would be fluent in how good you are when the pain is at its worst. Lord, help us. Give us grace today to worship you. Today, give us grace to worship you. Today, Father, in this moment, give us grace to sing of how good and beautiful and great you are. That we would be good, good worshipers and even better missionaries. We love you, Jesus. You're so good to us and you're so helpful. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.